welcome to A Reason for Hope. <laughs> My name is. is Adrian. <laughs> it's Adrian. Hey, Adrian. <laughs> and uh, uh, sorry for the slight uh, delay, but uh, we're happy to be here on a happy Monday. It's a little chilly here in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, this is we don't get to say that very often, do we? No, not very often at all. <laughs> it's actually nice to, a nice thing to say. Yeah. It's chilly. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, but uh, we're a ministry out of Tucson, Arizona, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. And this is A Reason for Hope, a weekday Bible answer program. We live stream <clears throat> every weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. And you can follow along or you can even ask questions and engage with us. We have multiple experts on uh, Bible prophecy, <clears throat> what we call Bible apologetics, that is, to be able to defend the Christian faith or uh, just an understanding of what Scripture means or what it teaches, uh, how you apply it to your life. If you want to follow along, you can go to our Facebook page. That's Our handle is CCF Tucson. And, of course, we're monitoring the chat during the entire uh, live stream. So if you have a question, please leave it, and we'll be happy to try to uh, tackle that question uh, during the pro program. <clears throat> we also live stream to YouTube. And if you happen to watch us on some of these social media platforms, we'd really appreciate it if you would uh, like, share, of course, subscribe, hit the notification bell so you know when we'll be live next. We also live stream all our services and special events here. Uh, and also, if you want to know what our YouTube handle is, it's a Reason for Hope 546. You can also, if you'd like, follow Pastor Scott Richards, our senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Tucson. Uh, his handle is Scott R4H. And, of course, you can leave a question there. He checks it during the times that he's here doing the program. And if you have a question, feel free to tweet it out, and we will try to get to that question, either, if not this program, the next time. You can also, if you just want to go to our website and you're a little weary about social media or something like that, you can go to our website and simply hit the Watch Live tab. Not only can you watch our live streams and our services there, but you can also comment, leave prayer requests, and so on. If you want to follow us along in our mobile app, we have a really awesome mobile app <laughs> that has the Bible, our past services, archives of sermons, and of course, a lot of ways you can engage with the community, even prayer channels, uh, group chats. You can download it at the Apple iTunes uh, store or the... Um, uh, what do we call it, Android now, or do we call it the Google Play Store? <laughs> the Google Play Store. <laughs> Either way. <laughs> we also live stream our, we also have our our broadcast going to Apple, I'm sorry, Amazon and Roku, so you can check it out there. Now, if you want to just leave a question anonymously, you can do so at questionsforhope at gmail.com. So if you want to just email us a question, if that's the easiest way for you, go right ahead and do that. And before we start taking questions today... Uh, how about we take a moment to pray? That would be awesome. Let's do that. Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity for us to spend time in your presence here today. And Lord, we do pray that as your word goes forth, you'd honor it, not uh, just in terms of accuracy and fidelity to what your entire message in the word is all about. Uh, we want to have that for sure, but we want to do it in harmony with your spirit. Uh, Lord, you tell us that when your word goes forth, it's for edification. You want us to know the truth about a relationship with you. It's for exhortation. You don't want us to just have head knowledge. You want it to be heart knowledge that works itself out in life knowledge and tangible, measurable differences in the way we live our lives day to day. We pray that you would uh, speak to us through your word in just that way. And, and you also say in 1 Corinthians 14, 3, that you speak to people for comfort. 
Lord, I know there are those within the sound of my voice that are feeling downcast, distressed, maybe flat out depressed. But I thank you, Lord, that you have the ability to be able to lift us up. And your word is powerful. It gets right to the issues of our heart. And Lord, I even pray for those who might be joining in who are curious uh, about what the Christian life's all about and what Christianity is all about. Maybe they've seen the movie Jesus Revolution and it's raised some questions in their mind. I I pray, Father, that uh, those questions would be answered as your Holy Spirit draws them into a living relationship with you, not by joining a church or getting religious, but, but by simply putting their faith and their trust, Lord, in what you've done for us, dying on the cross for our sins, rising from the dead in a moment of history so that we could have eternal life. If we just put our faith and trust in you, So, Lord, uh, we pray that you would accomplish all these things and a whole lot more. Thank you again for this opportunity to focus in on what really matters for the next few minutes. In Mm. Jesus' name, amen. Mm. Amen. Amen. So, did you get a chance to see it this weekend? I did, in fact, get a chance to finally see uh, uh, Jesus' revolution. Uh, It was funny. A lot of people were asking me last week what my take was on it and uh, on our Twitter feed. Uh, I uh, put up the uh, semi-snarky response by saying, uh, uh, I've decided not to comment on the movie until I actually see it. And then the next line was, uh, is refraining on commenting on something you have no firsthand knowledge about a violation of Twitter terms and conditions? (laughs) And then I put, asking for a friend. (laughs) There's a lot of people uh, do like to put in their two cents worth without... Uh, really seeing it, uh, really taking a look at it. Well, yesterday we had the opportunity uh, to go see uh, the theater that we saw it in in Tucson was absolutely jammed, Mm. uh, sold out. No seats were available at the showing that we're at. And uh, interestingly, uh, statistically, uh, a couple statistics I'd like to share before we Mm. get into some of the the nuts and bolts of it all. Uh, Jesus Revolution is the third highest grossing box office film in America right now. Really? As of last week, number wow. three in uh, gross receipts, box office in America today, you know, behind the Marvel movies and all that other stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so evidently, people are curious and uh, they're going to see it. The other statistic uh, that is really interesting is uh, the uh, folks over at Rotten Tomatoes. If you're familiar with that mm-hmm. website, it provides, uh, you know, reviews on movies and so on. Uh, the Rotten Tomatoes evaluation of uh, Jesus Revolution is it gets a 54% favorable rating on the tomato meter. Those are the critics. Those are the critics. Yeah. On the audience score, it gets 99% favorable ratings. Wow. So if you've ever <laughs> doubted that there's a bit of a disconnect between the media and the masses, mm. uh, boy, you see it right there. None of that should, I think, really be uh, surprising. I think. Well, at, at first of all, it means it was a well-made film. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the first thing I will say about it is this. Uh, Sometimes when I see Christian movies, I wince a little bit because essentially the level of quality that you see in them is uh, pretty much on the level of watching a YouTube video. Mm. You know, the the production values aren't good. The acting tends to be a little ham fisted. This video, this video is well produced. Uh, You know, (laughs) you know, the the, the cheese factor is, is, is pretty huge in these things. But none of those things were true about Jesus' revolution. Uh, the, the, there were aspects of it that just looking at even from uh, a critic's eye uh, and 
I, I have to fight that sometimes as a recovering son of attorney to go into a, a film like this being critical. But one of the things that I really loved about it was the setting was 1969. And uh, the, the thing that I noticed was the attention to detail. Uh, in, in other words, it really looked like 1969 to me. And I was around then to remember what it looked like. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the way houses were decorated, uh, the cars that you would see either parked or driving around were absolutely in sync with that time. And, and you know, to me, that, that shows that those who were involved with this were really interested in their craft. Uh, they, they weren't just going to sort of slapdash this and, you know, there goes a Tesla driving on by yeah. in 1969. Uh, no, it, it wasn't that. And, you know, there were all these kind of details from the television sets to the telephones to the, you know, the technology was available and so on. I really appreciated that. Uh, but, but I mean, even taking it a, a, a step forward, you know, people uh, will ask the question because again, I worked with Pastor Chuck Smith. I shared my testimony before <laughs> that if it weren't for, uh, Chuck Smith uh, taking me in as, as uh, Odin Fong of Mustard Seed Faith, who was there for all those things, used to say that Chuck likes to take in strays. Uh, I wouldn't be in ministry today. Mm. In fact, uh, our son, uh, Sean, is named Sean Charles after Chuck Smith. And mm. one of the things that uh, Chuck would always ask me, is, how is Sean Charles these days? He really got a <laughs> kick out of the fact that uh, we gave him that name. But, but you know, the, uh, both Pam and myself... Uh, had a, a close relationship uh, with Chuck. Uh, you know, we were friends with a number of members of his family. Uh, you know, some of the, the things that kind of struck me in all of this is uh, in the film, uh, and, you know, I, I won't spoil it for you if, if you haven't seen it, uh, but in the film, uh, the main character, or one of the main moving characters in this, is their daughter, Janelle, or, or Jeanette, I should say. And Jeanette uh, is a friend of ours. Uh, we've had a relationship with her, but there's three other Smith children that we've had relationships hmm. with as well. Chuck Jr. Uh, by the way, uh, Chuck Jr. Uh, does a devotional called One Minute Meditations. Hmm. And if you've never gotten a hold of that, uh, look it up on Amazon. Uh, I, I would highly suggest uh, you get a hold of this. It's probably one of the most helpful day-by-day -day devotionals you'll ever get hmm. into. Well, very quick, before yeah. you go further into the your experience of the film, for those who don't know anything about it, what's the background? Uh, who's it about? Well, it's about uh, the uh, Jesus Revolution. Uh, in other words, how did uh, this massive uh, outreach to the least likely individuals anybody could ever imagine, the hippies of that generation, how did it happen? What went on? What so, things came together in such a way that even uh, Time Magazine, uh, had uh, a cover story, Jesus Revolution. Uh, Tens five, of thousands of Five people. years after they uh, had a cover story saying, is God dead? Mm. Well, the answer was no. <laughs> and, and Jesus mm. and the Jesus Revolution really proved that. And tens of thousands of people came to faith. Well, tens of thousands, millions, wow. uh, I, I think would be a conservative mm. estimate. And it's still, the, the repercussions of it are still going on today. It's like throwing a a rock and a pond. The ripples are still mm. being felt. In fact, this ministry that we're in right now is one of those ripples because if it weren't for uh, the Jesus Revolution and what happened, particularly in Southern California, it happened in a number of different places across the country, but particularly what happened in Orange County, California uh, with a man by the name of Chuck Smith. He was the uh, pastor of a very small church uh, 
in uh, Costa Mesa, California, uh, 17 people uh, when he took it over and half were his family. Hmm. And uh, uh, he and his wife had a burden for the hippies. Uh, one of the things in the movie uh, that uh, was, I think, you can't show everything in a movie, but uh, the, the, the way it worked was, you know, Chuck and his wife Kay had a real burden for the hippies. In fact, Kay really did have that deeper in her heart. And they would drive down to Huntington Beach in their car and just watch these lost kids, you know, and, and feel so powerless to be able to reach them. And, uh, you know, they asked their daughter if it would be possible for them to actually meet a hippie, you know, because, you know, Chuck and Kay, their background, you know, the, the expression we used to use from there, they were squares, very you know, conservative. very conservative, <laughs> you know, lived down the street from John Wayne and all that stuff had similar worldviews. Uh, so they asked their, their daughter, well, they're in the actual story. It's a little different in the movie. Uh, the actual story is that uh, Jeanette was dating a young man who was friends uh, with uh, what I would call the quintessential hippie. He was a fellow by the name of Lonnie Frisbee. Uh, he had uh, come to Christ after being a part of the hippie culture in Haight-Ashbury up in San Francisco and uh, really just had a remarkable conversion. Uh, you know, he looked, uh, he definitely looked the part. I mean, he looked like an apostle when you talked to him. So he was the first one that uh, Pastor Chuck and Kay were introduced to. And, uh, you know, the, the, the wonderful thing was that created a bridge uh, of understanding between uh, Chuck and Kay and where they were coming from and where these young people were coming from. And the thing that, they, that uh, you know, Chuck would always say uh, was that they discovered that uh, far from just being these unreachable, completely countercultural, uh, want nothing to do uh, with religion kind of individuals. Um, they were, you know, the hippies of that time were incredibly seeking and searching people. Uh, and uh, they were concerned about things like authenticity instead of hypocrisy. They saw a lot of game playing and, uh, and phoniness in American culture at that time. You know, one thing in public, one thing in private, that sort of thing. Uh, even in the church, it seemed, you know, really put on and, and, and uh, you know, not dealing with issues of the heart. Uh, the hippies were looking for something more, more deep than that. Uh, they were looking for authentic, authenticity. They were looking for authentic love. Uh, you know, the summer of love, as it was called in 1967. Uh, the idea of free love. The idea of people like Timothy Leary uh, and the influence that he had. Uh, through promoting, uh, you know, expanding your consciousness mm. uh, through taking LSD. Part of that was to experience what real authentic love was all about. And they thought that they could find love, like through music, uh, through corporate experiences like Woodstock and, and other events along these lines. But the, the problem with the promised love that they were looking for there was it was barely uh, discernible between that and lust. There was an awful lot of usury going on, an awful lot of violence going on in hippie culture. Maybe, you know, one of the straws that broke the camel's back was the rise of the Manson family that came out of the hippie culture. And you found that, whoa, you know, this is very, very different than how things are being built. But the most important thing was hippies were looking for a higher uh, ultimate reality. 
Even uh, Timothy Leary, our good friend Odin Fong, was uh, one of Timothy, Timothy Leary's bodyguards, believe it or not, way back in the day. And he would tell us how Timothy Leary would say, the reason that you want to drop acid is it's going to get you in touch with the divine. Hmm. You know, and, and that was the search. That was the hunger. Uh, the problem with dropping acid was, yeah, you know, maybe the first time or two you do it, you have uh, you know, a pretty over-the-top experience that you could confuse with something spiritual. But boy, have a bad trip. And suddenly everything is is different. And, you know, people are going, well, you know, is this the divine or is this just a chemical reaction? And the people are thinking through these things. Mm. You know, the, the hippie movement uh, was asking all the right questions. But uh, as they say in uh, Jesus' revolution, they were looking for the answers in all the wrong places. Mm. The, the main character, Lonnie Frisbee, talks about that. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the, the amazing thing was... You know, hippies like, say, Lonnie Frisbee and others were discovering that rather than trying to find their answers uh, through, you know, these things that promised much and just didn't deliver, uh, instead, uh, you know, the idea that Jesus loved them, that they could find absolute authentic love and a relationship, a personal relationship with Jesus, that they could find a purpose and a meaning behind their lives uh, that was uh, something that would be substantial and satisfying and and something that would get through to the heart, that they would find that kind of authenticity, if you will, in their relationship uh, with God. Well, when that began to bridge the gap between, say, the squares, you know, the old L7 kind of thing, uh, and, uh, and, and the, the, the hippies, this was a very powerful mix. And for a guy like Chuck Smith, who came from a very conservative background, to invite the hippies in was a huge step of faith. It was a huge risk because he ran the risk, and they did portray this in the movies, of running off uh, some of the more substantial people in the congregation, the people who underwrote things uh, financially and so on. Uh, they weren't at all happy about the, the hippie revolution. One thing they didn't show in the movies that was a real turning point uh, was the hippies be kept coming and coming, and they began filling up this place called Calvary Chapel. Uh, Calvary Chapel had just put in some brand new shag carpeting. Shag carpeting, remember that? I remember that. But uh, one of the elders before the services uh, put up a sign outside saying, no bare feet on the shag carpeting, on our new carpeting. And Chuck got there early and he took the sign down and he immediately called an elders meeting. And he said, if we are going to turn someone away from hearing about Jesus simply because they don't have shoes, mm. then you guys can go find another pastor. And the elder board backed down. I mean, Chuck was there. He had a carpet cutter. We'll just take the carpet out. Now in the movie, there's a really great scene that, that kind of details a little bit of this, so I won't spoil it for those who haven't seen it. But it's a very they, moving, they this moment. moving scene mm. about this. Not this this moment exactly, but they did, you know, portray this conflict about the hippies coming in without shoes, and how Chuck responded to that. Uh, I've got to talk to some people who were actually there because I'm not sure that this was a dramatic invention or not what they show in the movie. But uh, but suffice it to say. Uh, the, the thing that was so powerful about this movie to Pam and I, because, you know, again, Pam grew up in that church. 
I mean, she was there long before I got there in 1991. I was in Southern California during the Jesus movement, and uh, it was, uh, you know, when, when people say, well, how did the Jesus in- movement influence you coming to, to Christ? Well, two things led me to the Lord, I think, that God really used in my life. Number one, uh, it was uh, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes ministry that I got involved with. My football coach, who's also my physics teacher, uh, was uh, running it, so I figured my grade, my playing time needed all the help they could get, so I'd show up at these meetings, even though I considered myself to be an atheist, and I would argue with Christians afterwards about the stuff that was being you know, shared in these meetings. My coach shared an article from the Journal of the American Medical Association on the physical death of Jesus from a doctor's point of view. And, uh, you know, describing how Jesus suffered the way that he did was completely new information to me. I mean, my view of Jesus' sufferings were the, you know, skinny Northern European-looking guy in the stained glass, you know, maybe a neatly placed crown of thorns on his head, uh, looking up, going, this is tough, but I can handle it. Owie. You know, yeah. (laughs) But uh, to know that Jesus was so savage before he even got to the cross, you could hardly recognize who he was Mm. anymore. That blew my mind. And as a uh, uh, son of an attorney, my dad always told us, truth is found in the marketplace of ideas. Don't accept what people tell you. You do your own homework. You come to your own conclusions. Well, my dad, who was an atheist, didn't realize I was planting the seeds for my conversion because this thought crossed my mind. If I don't know that about Jesus, what else don't I know about Jesus? Hmm. And, and so, you know, and, and there was a sense in my heart, you know, just after I heard that and I was willing to concede that Jesus was a great man, you know, but, but the, the idea of him suffering so much, it, I mean, there's this grief that I almost felt in my heart, like, oh my gosh, it was such a tragedy that he had to suffer that way. I didn't believe he was the son of God or that he rose from the dead or anything, but, but I, I could see it was the Holy Spirit beginning to work on me, at least mm-hmm. in an intellectual way. But in, in my heart, one of the things that I think God really used was, you know, in every high school, you got your cliques, mm-hmm. Right. You got your jocks, you got your cheerleaders, you've got your nerds, you've got your <laughs> loadies, you know, you've got, you know, the, the cowboys and, and all that. And they, they tend to gravitate together. Well, in my high school in Southern California, there were also what we called the Jesus freaks. The people would hang out together and they'd have a guitar or two out there and they'd be reading the Bible and singing these songs of the Lord in between periods or at lunch. And, and uh, you know, most of the people were kind of like, whoa, you know, that's, that's really you know, kind of weird and, and all this stuff. But the thing that hit me was when I would see these people, you know, I'd watch them from a distance and they seemed to really care about each other. And that kind of impacted me because, you know, I was, you know, in the academic tract, I came from uh, sort of a culture where it was dog eat dog and keeping up with the wolves and try not to humiliate yourself because, uh, you know, any sign of weakness would just be pounced upon and all of this. And it was just a very driven kind of existence. But I looked at these people and they, they just seemed to, you know, I, I, I wouldn't even call it love at that point from my perspective, but they seemed to really be there for each other and care about each other. And I had not really seen that very much in my life and the culture and the, 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 uh, the, the people that I grew up with. And, and, and then I started noticing that some of these Jesus freaks that I had in my classes were really nice to me, even though I considered myself to be an atheist. And sometimes I would even, you know, say things that I knew would be hurtful to them. They never seemed to take it personally, you know, and they just seemed to keep caring about me, you know, no matter what. 
and there was just something in them that was really compelling to me. And, you know, I think that was God plowing up my ground, hmm. you know, taking the hardness away from me so that when my Fellowship of Christian Athletes group went to a Billy Graham film called A Time to Run that came out basically in that same era, you know, about how God's the hound of heaven. And when he gets on your tail, he's not going to give up till he's got you. I remember watching this movie and it just seemed like watching my life. And, uh, you know, there was a scene in the movie uh, where a musician named Randy Stonehill was, was putting on a concert, and he sang this really simple song. It was called I Love You. Uh, and the lyrics went, Jesus came into the world to show us the way and set us all free. And when he died, he was saying, I love you. And it was just like something, Adrian, just clicked in, in, in my, my head. It was like all that suffering that Jesus went through. It was like the Lord spoke to my heart for the first time saying, you know, I did that because I love you. And suddenly I understood where this love that these people had came from. And, uh, you know, they did an altar call and, you know, I don't, I don't even remember going forward, but, but I received the Lord at that time. So this I would was say, Billy Graham, at, the Billy at a Billy Graham film that was put on during that time. But I would say that the, the Jesus people and the Jesus movement, you know, demonstrating the simplicity of a relationship with God and just loving him and loving his word and wanting to walk with Jesus and wanting to represent him, wanting to love people like Jesus did uh, was what was really, really compelling to me. And the thing I would say about Jesus' revolution is that it portrays that simplicity. Mm. Um, it doesn't gloss over uh, by any means the complexity and the sometimes failures in fallen human nature, even in people who are deeply involved with this movement, it doesn't. It doesn't, uh, you, know, uh, you know, put any kind of a covering over that. But it does show that the reason it was a powerful movement wasn't because of the personalities involved. It wasn't just because Chuck Smith was a great Bible teacher. He'd been a great Bible teacher and had a church of seventeen people. You know, um, it wasn't just because they met the right hippie and this hippie was very charismatic and people really dug this hippie because even when this uh, hippie Lonnie Frisbee left the Calvary movement, the Calvary movement didn't miss a, miss a beat. You know, it just continued to grow and thrive because it was based upon the work of God's spirit. It was based upon emphasizing love, the love of God, without which we have no right to call ourselves Christians, what we put on our statement of faith. Mm -hmm. uh, it emphasized the simple verse-by-verse -verse teaching of God's Word, the whole counsel of God, and, uh, and just putting first things first, including making the very person of Jesus Christ central in, in what was going on there. And that's why I think the Jesus movement was, was so very powerful. Mm. You know? And you know, people ask me questions, well, do you think that you know this relates to like what's going on at Asbury University and and uh, you know the the so-called uh, Asbury revival that might be going on. People ask me about that. You know, I think it's too soon to tell. Um, you know, I think it's really neat that that's this organic thing uh, that has just come out of young people. That it's not being orchestrated by some ministry or five hundred one c three or something like that. And I, I think that's really cool. That's great. Uh, it seems like the people involved are just really interested in simply worshiping God and staying focused on that, having a relationship with him. And, and, and I think that's, that's great. The only thing that I think the Jesus movement would have uh, to uh, teach 
this movement, to, to help this movement out, would be to say, do not neglect the power of God's word. Hmm. You know, don't just make it about worship and singing about God. Keep Jesus Christ central and his word central in what you're doing. At yep. the middle of, you know, if you want to pursue a real relationship with God, <clears throat> you have to relate to God on his terms. And the only way to know that is to go to what he said. Yeah, 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 exactly, <clears throat> exactly. You know, Jesus, according to John chapter one, uh, was full of grace and truth. Mm. And uh, we don't want to err on either side. Mm. You know, we as human beings tend to swing with the pendulum, right? You've probably run into yeah. very gracious people who seem to really care about people, but almost at the expense of truth. Like, I don't want to offend. I don't want to challenge. Uh, even if people are buying into things and ideas that are ultimately going to be very destructive for them, I want them to like me. And, uh, you know, that, that area on the side of grace can be really dangerous. There's others who are on the side of truth, and they tend to look like people have been baptized in lemon juice. And uh, anything that goes on mm. in the name of God is suspect. Sons of and, thunder with literal swords. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, the, they're, they're more concerned about talking about uh, doctrinal fine points than a real relationship hmm. with God. Now, doctrine is absolutely in, uh, essential. By doctrine, we mean what the Bible has to say about specific issues. Uh, don't, don't let the word doctrine out there scare you. Uh, it's a really important thing to know what the Bible has to say, know what Jesus had to say. Uh, about life, uh, about morality, uh, about our worldview, about uh, what happens after this life, mm. about how we can make a soft landing mm. on the other side mm. of this life, and what God did personally to make this all possible, to rescue and redeem us as his, as his uh, lost and, and fallen race. You know, uh, you know, there was a great line, again, that Randy Stonehill wrote. It said that we're all foolish puppets who desiring to be kings now lie pitiful and crippled after cutting our own strings. Mm. And, uh, you know, wow. God wants to provide that healing there. He wants to bring us back. The way we come back to that is understanding his truth. You know, yesterday uh, we, uh, we went through Acts chapter 7 here. Stephen's incredible uh, Old Testament at 30,000 feet sermon. Uh, you know, people say it was his defense before uh, the Jewish ruling council. Well, he wasn't very defensive. He was on the offense. Uh, because he basically showed that even though they stood for Moses, they really didn't understand the point of why Moses came or what he was really all about. Uh, they accused him of speaking against the temple. Uh, they didn't really understand that the temple couldn't house God. Even uh, Solomon himself said that when he dedicated uh, the temple and that they put their faith in a place rather than the person uh, of God. Uh, they accused him of speaking against the law of God. But he's saying, look, you know, you guys... Uh, are saying that you're the experts in the law, but you've rewritten it. You you haven't kept it, uh, and, and and it was just such a beautiful, beautiful thing. But you see there how absolutely essential the Word of God is, mm. and and how that is what changes people's lives and really penetrates people to the heart. So uh, as far as uh, Jesus' revolution is concerned, uh, you know the the thing that that Pam and I both came away from on it is it not only captures the feel of being back in the late 60s. They do a great job of that. But also in their their portrayal of what 
these gatherings were like in the Jesus movement, mm. you know, like the mass baptisms at Pirate's Cove. Mm. I, mean, I had the opportunity to be a part of all of that. And it's just an amazing experience. Uh, <laughs> we as pastors would be out there uh, to baptize people if they got tired of waiting for Pastor Chuck to baptize them. <laughs> we, we basically ended up standing about uh, waist deep in freezing cold water with a line of about 300 people waiting for Chuck. And finally, people might get tired or have to go and we'd have to baptize somebody but he would baptize everybody that wanted to be out there to be baptized and it was just such a powerful thing but they captured the 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 sense of the move of god's spirit the sense of god's love that you felt when you were there the sense that you were accepted and and not judged or written off for who you were that god really did care about you and there was that beautiful beautiful simplicity to it all that uh you know essentially uh, created uh, the Jesus revolution, mm. the Jesus movement. And I think is the reason why uh, you now have, uh, wow, well over 2,000 Calvary chapels that came out of that one little country church on the edge of town as Love Song, one of the first Christian bands used to sing, uh, us being one of them, mm. you know? And, and so when I look at other uh, revivals, like the Asbury Revival, it's very cool that young people want to worship the Lord and I'm entirely mm. in favor of that. Uh, whether this is real, whether it's lasting, whether it's uh, going to be a true revival in any sense of the term, uh, the jury's still out. Mm. You know, and and I I don't think we should be uh, uncritical of maybe some things that come out of it that aren't biblical. We are to always be Bereans, searching the scriptures mm -hmm. daily to see if these things are so. But we shouldn't be so stuck in our ways that we assume that God can't do something new or, mm. or, or different uh, than, so what, be, than what we've seen before. Be discerning, but uh, let people go in barefooted. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Exactly. Wow. And so in, in order to honor the movie, uh, I'm here in studio <laughs> with my hippie bare feet. You like that? There, nice. There you go. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Yeah. So... So my, my well, ultimate trivia, the, I, I highly recommend going to see it. I don't think you'll, you know, there were times, uh, you know, it's very emotionally moving. Uh, there were times where we, we both were moved to tears because mm. some of the things just really resonated with us and reminded us of Pastor Chuck and how much we miss him. He passed away in 2013. Mm. Um, you know, there were just moments where you just saw how the Holy Spirit mm. really did uh, a work in the most helpless and hopeless people and that he is still doing that changing work today and so uh, very exciting some have argued that he that that god through this man reached more people for christ um in the entire 20th century maybe even in christian history well you know i i don't know how you could statistically quantify that but stop and think um pastor chuck uh, and uh, the ministry of Calvary Chapel and Lonnie Frisbee, the hippie, was a, a big part of that at the beginning. And, and like I said, they don't paper over some of the difficulties this guy had. But God always honors his word. Mm. And you stop and think, one lost kid by the name of Greg Laurie, who had never had a sense of family that wouldn't fail him, that wouldn't leave. Everybody kind of mm. left that he counted on in his family. And this one kid who got reached and finally understood that God loved him is now the pastor of one of the largest churches in Southern California, 
Uh, they do the Harvest Crusades every year at Anaheim Stadium, for goodness mm. sake, three nights. Uh, I've been a part of the counseling team at some of these events. And uh, you, know, you just see uh, thousands of people coming forward either to rededicate their lives or make first-time professions of faith mm. in Christ at these events. And it's not just in Anaheim. He does them all over the world now. You know, It's almost like the, the baton that Billy Graham had has been passed on to Greg Laurie. This is one guy. I mean, we could talk about other people that came out of uh, that same Jesus yeah. movement. Skip Heitze in Albuquerque, Mike McIntosh mm. in San Diego, uh, Raul Reese, uh, individuals that have had worldwide uh, impact mm. uh, for Jesus. And it all came out of what happened then. So, well, even uh, my own conversion, um, the foundations were laid by Pastor Robert Furrow. Yeah. I was yeah. 16 and... Uh, dragged over, and it was the first time I ever ex- listened to someone preach and <clears throat> felt incredible aha and conviction. Wow. And I think within uh, weeks, I walked forward at another church because I was hearing the same message, but it was that foundation that Robert laid. Right. I just needed someone to ask me, do you want to be a Christian? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I was like, yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's a uh, and uh, minor spoiler alert, but uh, when Greg goes out to get baptized— by Lonnie Frisbee. They have a similar mm. interaction, mm. you know, and uh, I think uh, the Lonnie Frisbee character asks him, you know, why are you out here? And he goes, I'm not sure. And he goes, you want Jesus right now. Mm. Do you want to receive him? Mm. And, and Greg finally said, yeah, yeah, I do. Wow. And, uh, and, and, you know, it was just a beautiful moment. Like one of those tear jerkers, you yeah, know? Yeah. In fact, so, uh, one of our questioners on YouTube, Mac D, is there a reason why someone would weep at church or during this movie, Jesus Revolution, uh, is it because it's deep and true? Is it the truth that makes people weep? Or, you know, why would someone weep at church? Well, you know, let's face it. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 4, and verse 12, Mag, and I think it's a great question, uh, we're told that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. But it goes on from there in a very interesting way. It, it says, it is able to separate joints and marrow, soul and spirit, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, when a person is impacted on a heart-to-heart level, when God speaks to you in that way, it's going to have, I think, uh, an, an emotional impact on your life. Uh, you know, some, I, I guess depending on the kind of personality and whether you, know, you tend to be emotive or not, um, you know, you know, I'm not saying that everybody has to have that same sort of experience, but it, it's, it's really interesting how when people, even in scripture, Mac, that we see have an encounter with Jesus, that tears are not an exception to the rule. I think about, uh, how Jesus was invited to the home of Simon, the Pharisee, and this woman came in, uh, who was known as a prostitute and uh, uh, fell at Jesus' feet and uh, began to weep on his feet and dry his feet with her hair. And Simon the Pharisee uh, responded by saying, well, if this man were a prophet, he would know uh, what kind of woman this is who's touching him, that she's a sinner. And Jesus said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he goes, well, say it. He goes, well, uh, two people owed uh, a, uh, a lender, uh, you know, uh, money. One owed the lender a huge debt. One owed very little. And he freely forgave them both. 
Jesus said, which one of these two do you suppose would love that lender more? And the guy said, well, I suppose the one who's forgiven more because you've rightly judged because this woman uh, hasn't stopped, uh, you know, you kind of went down the laundry list. Uh, you know, you, you didn't anoint my head with oil when I came in here. She poured costly perfume on me. Uh, you didn't give me uh, a foot washing, which was customary. Mm. Uh, she has washed my feet and dried them with her hair. And Jesus said something. She said, uh, so her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Uh, for he who's forgiven much loves much, but mm. he who's forgiven little loves little. Wow. You know, yeah. but, but this emotional experience, not everybody who came to Jesus had an over-the-top emotional experience. But sooner or later, God's going to minister to us as whole people. And uh, in some areas of Christianity, this is kind of a scary thought, but God is the author of our emotions. He is the one who created us with the capacity to feel. And if you don't think that God feels, boy, join us for a study in the book of Ezekiel, mm. you know, where God says, I was crushed by your spiritual adultery. You know, the, the, the idea that God would be emotionally so uh, invested in his people as to be crushed and to feel as though he had been betrayed like a husband, uh, feeling like his wife had had an affair on him mm. in the midst of all of this. It tells you we serve an emotional God. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, again, with great emotion comes the possibility of great excesses and, and great errors. But I think it's also wrong to go the other way and confuse real spirituality with sort of this sour, dour, uh, nothing bothers me, kind of this Mr. Spock sort of stoicism mm. uh, that sometimes people think uh, is characteristic of the spiritually mature. You know, it's really interesting about Pastor Chuck, bringing it back to him uh, again. You know, like I said, he came from sort of the John Wayne school of thought, you know, uh, big boys don't cry, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. And uh, generally speaking, you know, he would, he would emote. Obviously, he, he had great joy. He had this, uh, you know, 100-watt uh, smile that he would uh, uh, share as he shared God's word. It was very engaging. But, uh, you know, early on, you didn't see him weep very much. Uh, but after uh, he had a stroke, uh, not long before his death, his personality really kind of changed, and, mm. and you found him... Uh, weeping about things, you know, and, and sharing, you know, God's truth. And, you know, he would talk about, say, the lost, and he would start to weep over the fact that people were lost and they were dying without Jesus. And you could see that this emotional part of him had opened up. Now, I don't think that was a defect caused by a stroke. Uh, I really believe that was part of that sanctifying process that God mm. does in all of us mm. to make us, you know, real and authentic human beings, kind of like the old line from uh, the Wizard of Oz with the Tin Man saying, now I know I've got a heart because it's breaking. Uh, you know, if, if you don't want to experience the whole panorama of emotion, uh, don't come into a relationship with Jesus because he's going to touch every part of your life, including your emotions. And, uh, you know, I generally speaking, because I come from years and years of uh, dour Swedes and, and <laughs> stoic Germans, uh, you know, I don't cry very easily. Uh, it's not something that happens to me a lot. But one of the things that was really remarkable to me, and uh, this, this happened 
uh, when I started going for the first time to a Calvary Chapel. The first Calvary Chapel I attended was Calvary Tucson with Robert Furrow. And I remember Robert sharing a message uh, about 1 John chapter 3, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the sons of God. And he shared a really personal story about uh, you know, coming to a place in his life where he had to figure out that God was very different from his dad. And you know, he shared this relationship that he had with his dad and the pain that was involved with it all and uh, how uh, he finally realized that you know, it was like when things were going well, he felt like God was standing right up there with him in the pulpit. When things weren't going well, that God was kind of back in a corner with his arms folded up, folded his eyes. Well, that's your problem. He said, no, you know, God is with us forever. He's a perfect father. Mm. And I remember hearing these words, and I was going through a very difficult time in my life at this point, and I remember just breaking down and weeping. And the thing, the thought dawned on me, I hadn't wept in church in five years. Mm. Wow. And, but it was such a breaking, it was such a healing sort of a thing. And so, you know, again, you know, it's not one of those things where well, I'm going to pull a nose hair and jerk a tear and, you know, <laughs> look, look spiritual or something like that. You can't force that to happen, nor should you try to force it or confuse being in an over-the-top emotional experience with a, a real encounter with God. Mm. Our, our feelings aren't good. They're not bad. They're just our feelings. They're, they're excellent servants, but they're poor masters, we mm. often tell people here. Uh, but, I really love that Bill Bright diagram, the spirit-filled life, and he uses a, a train car. Yeah, and it's the the engine he calls uh, fact, <clears throat> the middle car he calls faith, and then the caboose he calls feeling. Right. And the idea is that you you need all three elements, but you can't pull the train with your feelings. You have to start with the facts, followed by belief, faith. Yeah. And then your emotions will follow. And the train will run with or without the caboose. Correct. Right, yeah. But it won't run very far without faith, a fact, and, and faith, which I think is a really great illustration there. But, but uh, is it wrong to to cry in church if it's authentic, if it's real, if it's not? Hey, look at me, I'm emoting. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely, mm-hmm. you know, and we do see that in how Jesus ministered to people. So, mm-hmm. um, don't be don't be afraid of emotions. Don't be ruled by your emotions, but don't be afraid of them. You know, part of being a living sacrifice, you know, laying our lives down as a living sacrifice, presenting our bodies, that is this physical uh, makeup that we have here uh, as a sacrifice to God, includes giving God your emotions and allowing God to use our emotions for his glory. And he can do that. So, hmm. yeah. Well, Jude wants to know, thank you that for sharing your story too, Scott. Uh, there's little aspects that I pick up on new every time I hear you share your your testimony or some aspect of your Christian experience. Well, that, it, my blessing, yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, and, and what a blessing. You know, and I just want to just take this moment to say it. You know, we're on Reach Radio, which is an outreach of Calvary Tucson. And, you know, what a blessing, you know, to have a church like Calvary Tucson that has the opportunity to be able to impact so many people through these ministries. And, you know, if it weren't for Robert Furrow introducing me to Chuck Smith, inviting me to go with him to a pastor's conference there, really? I never would have met Pastor Chuck. So wow. I, I owe Robert big time. So. Well, I, I kind of have that same sentiment because, <clears throat> believe it or not, Robert was my, when I first decided to go into ministry, of course, I was with uh, Youth for Christ, <clears throat> and uh, we had to raise our own support yeah. in order to go full-time ministry. Yeah. And one of the first people I sat down with was the pastor that led me to Christ. Yeah. So I sat down, he actually met with me 
And uh, he, the church became my very first supporter. Did so, you do some of your freaky magic tricks to impress him? I had, I had, uh, <laughs> yeah. Over the next several years, they used to have me for that downtown, you know, big yeah. celebration they would have. I would do my show and my, my message for all the teens when yeah. they would book the whole convention yeah. center. And yeah. So I did that for several years, but uh, <laughs> yeah, awesome. 59 international missionary tours later. How, how can you not support somebody who can uh, transmute a salt shaker through a solid table? <laughs> I, I, I would have signed up. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, thank you. And thanks, uh, Pastor Robert, for uh, being faithful to, to the Lord. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Jude wants to know, what does it mean that the leech has two daughters, Proverbs thirty fifteen. Uh, is this scientific and allegoric at the same time? Does science, and this is kind of a two-part question, does science affirm the Bible, or does the Bible affirm science? Well, let's start with uh, the most simple part of all of this. Um, when it says the leech has two daughters, give and give is the next line. You know, in, in other words, uh, there's, uh, there's all kinds of people out there that are going to, uh, you know, be in a sense parasitic uh, in life. And once you start to uh, supply uh, nutrients to a parasite, uh, there's going to be no end to it. That's, that's basically what the point of that proverb is. Uh, if people come to us and, uh, you know, again, uh, in Proverbs 30, uh, there's a number of these uh, comparisons uh, that, that are uh, being made there. Uh, it says there are three things that are never satisfied, four that say, never say enough, the grave, the barren womb, the earth that is not satisfied with water, and fire that never says enough. So, you know, it's this idea of people thinking that material things can satisfy. You know, and if you come to a place of believing that money and material things are going to be what brings you peace, you're always going to be after it. You're always going to be looking for it. And, you know, the idea of uh, the leech, uh, you know, when you talk about a parasite like a leech, it's not a symbiotic relationship. A leech lives off of its host. Its host gets no benefit uh, from having the leech around. And so, uh, if there's an individual who's characterized by not being willing to work, not being willing to make steps to be self-sufficient, but is constantly coming back saying, oh, you know, I just need a little bit more. Oh, can I have another handout? Well, it fits in that category about things that never say enough. So it doesn't just say that leeches only have two offspring and they're both female leeches. It's what we call an analogy, uh, a symbolic, uh, metaphoric picture of the principle that is being illustrated in the proverb. Awesome. Well, and, and so I guess the other question is, yeah, would, and that, that's if it's, I mean, not allegorical, but as you explained it, what does, does this mean that the, that science can affirm the Bible or is it that the Bible is affirming what we later discover as scientific fact? Well, a couple of things we need to remember about this. Um, number one, the Bible does not purport to be a science book. And we should all be grateful for that. Why? Because science and scientific discovery is always changing. Uh, when I was in school, they told us that the universe was about uh, 10 billion light years across. Now, because of Hubble and these other space telescopes, 
they're telling us that it's 15 billion light years across. You understand in uh, 30 years, the universe expanded by 5 billion light years. Uh, you know, so science is always changing. Uh, and, uh, you know, understand that when we say the Bible is not a science book, that's not the purpose to what it is written. Now, it is true concerning everything it addresses. It is not contrary to what we would say good science is all about. Solid science is all about. What is solid science all about? We have to define our terms. Science are the conclusions and observations about reality that are obtained by using the scientific method. The scientific method evaluates and discovers reality by experimentation, by things that are observable, testable, and repeatable. In other words, if you just have a one-off sort of a thing, it doesn't mean it's true. Uh, so uh, when people use the scientific method, they can discover you know, wonderful things. They can discover, uh, for instance, the technology that uh, allows Elon Musk to shoot rockets into the uh, atmosphere. Uh, you know, the, the same thing uh, that will cause you to have a breath spray that lets you kiss a little longer. These sort of things. Uh, you know, medicines, these things uh, are all a result of the scientific method. Now, there's a difference between what's called operational science and historical science. Uh, operational science is what we've just described. Things that are determined by the scientific method. Things like engineering, things like, you know, you know, you know electricity, these sort of things. You know, discovering things, observing things, measuring things uh, in the here and now. That's operational science, and that's a great, great thing. Why? Because, believe it or not, it arose out of a Christian worldview. Uh, you know, we talk about, uh, you know, the Enlightenment, uh, that sort of thing. The Enlightenment uh, came about when individuals looking at this world from a Christian worldview came to a conclusion. As Albert Einstein once said, God doesn't play dice with the universe. In other words, if there's a purposeful creator, then there should be order and consistency in the creation that can be discovered. Now, uh, because of that, you know, people like, say, you know, for instance, Galileo Galilee, who's always brought forth as a great skeptic, he was a believer in Christ. He wasn't much of a believer in the Roman Catholic Church, for sure, but he was a believer in Christ. Uh, you know, again, individuals like Blaise Pascal, who, you know, discovered barometric pressure, uh, you know, all of these individuals, these noted scientists, brilliant thinkers down the line, um, you know, Isaac, Sir Isaac Newton, the law of gravity. They had that Christian worldview. In fact, Sir Isaac Newton would say that his Bible commentaries, he felt, were more helpful than any of the scientific discoveries hmm. he ever came up with. So that's operational science. But there's also something called historical science. And what that tries to do is it tries to take current things that we see right now to extrapolate back to try to discover reality that we can't see, things that happened billions of years ago. Now, or things are just so far away we can't see them. <laughs> yeah, so when someone gets involved with historical science or even looking at the future, speculative science, you can always tell that you're dealing with this because uh, when you look at an article in Scientific American, when they talk about the latest dinosaur that they discovered and the remarkable thing it is, uh, you'll notice there's weasel words that are always put into it. They think, scientists think <clears throat> this very well may have been the first thing with feathers uh you know you, you have to be very critical about all this why do they have those weasel words in there because nobody was there to see it 
Nobody was there to apply the scientific method to verify whether these things they're saying about the nature of reality are really true. They're speculating based on current conditions. Radiometric dating is a great example of this because as soon as we say, well, we can measure the rate of decay in rocks and we can figure out how old they are based upon the amount of uh, parent element and daughter element there are, figure out how long it decayed, and that's how we can determine the age. Well, there's a huge assumption there. You're assuming that you know how much of that element was there in the beginning. You assume that the rate of decay has been constant down through time. We don't know that for sure. We can speculate, but we don't know that for sure. We don't know, say, for instance, if a rock sample was affected by other things. For instance, a radiometric dating results can be radically altered by something as simple as exposure to oxygen or ozone from the atmosphere or the presence of other radioactive rocks in the, the sample. You know, So when someone says, oh, science has proven this through radiometric dating, no, science has inferred this through a series of assumptions they've made about the decay of radioactive elements. Yeah, no one was there to see it's it. It's an educated guess. So, so <laughs> having said that, the Bible is never opposed to good science. The heavens are declaring the glory of God, and the firmament shows forth his mm -hmm. handiwork. We should look at the creation and discover uh, the mind of the creator. Uh, Kepler, the famous uh, astronomer, uh, once said this, Oh God, I'm, I'm thinking your thoughts after you. That's what, what real science is all about. And you're never going to find anything in the Bible that contradicts real science. You know, atheistsrs.com might tell you that, but usually it's a passage taken out of context. Mm -hmm. So um, the Bible is true in the thing that it affirms about reality because it's true about the God who made reality. So, Well, thanks for that question, Jude. And it's amazing to see our, the minister that I serve with, he's a PhD biologist, and he's just always talking about how nature observed nature in the Bible affirms what we're now later later learning about right. how birds behave and things that were revealed. So it's really fascinating. But thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah. Uh, we'll be here tomorrow, same place, same time. God bless you. Right. God bless you guys. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.